Lord, Lord God, we, we thank you for, for tonight. We pray that, uh, that you would just come and speak to us, God, and uh, Lord, reveal your word to us, God, and, and Lord, we, we pray that you would just begin to make us more like you tonight, God, and, and Lord, we thank you that your word does not return void, but it will accomplish what you desire. And so, God, I just thank you that tonight that, that these words from the Bible will, will go deep into our hearts, Lord, and land on good soil, and that they will produce lasting fruit in our lives for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, Deuteronomy uh, is a pretty cool book. It's really a collection of speeches and exhortations and even a worship song that Moses gave to Israel whenever they were uh, on the plains of Moab, about to enter into the promised land. Hey, Daniel, guys, I'm feeling really echoey. I don't know if y'all can do anything about that, but uh, if you can't, that's okay. Uh, anyway, 40 years earlier, before Deuteronomy, uh, Israel had been in Egyptian slavery, and God uh, came by the ten plagues and miraculously delivered them from their Egyptian slavery. And uh, when they came out, when the Pharaoh came out, he pursued after them, and he, he, was, he was intent to destroy them. And, you know, God stood between uh, Egypt and Israel uh, as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And then he's, he parted the Red Sea, and they crossed over on dry ground. And in those same waters that he provided escape for his people, he drowned their enemies in those waters, you know. And uh, so they came out, and despite a lot of rebellion and complaining for, for the, the, the year where they journeyed from Egypt to Mount Sinai and received the law, he miraculously provided for them. The Bible says that their shoes didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out, and they had food on the ground every day when they would wake up, and there was a rock that followed them around and provided them water. And, uh, and so God miraculously provided for them. And, uh, you know, they received the law and then they traveled to uh, a town called Kadesh Barnea, which is south of the promised land. And they were on the, the brink of the land of promise, uh, ready to go in and God was going to give them the land. But, uh, they sent in the spies and 10 of the 12 spies came back with a bad report. They said, we can't do it. We can't take the land. It's impossible. They're bigger than us. They've got big walled cities. We can't do it. And instead of having faith in God, they allowed fear to come into their hearts. And so they really kind of began to blaspheme God. And um, they said, they said God's, God's brought us out of Egypt. I'm laughing at Aaron because he's like, where's my wife? <laughs> she didn't save me a seat. <laughs> I get that feeling all the time, man. It's funny. Uh, so anyway, they allowed fear to, to grip their hearts and instead of following in faith. And, and they, they said, God's just brought us out of Egypt so that we can die. You know, basically blaspheming in the face of God. And so uh, that didn't, obviously didn't make God very happy. And, and they repented of their sin but they were uh, punished by having to wander around in the wilderness for 40 more years. And uh, they, that whole generation 
that was 20 years old or older at Kadesh Barnea uh, died in the wilderness, died in those 40 years. So uh, here is Israel now. They've been wandering around. The whole generation has died. And now they've come not to the southern border, but to the eastern border of the promised land, uh, just on the east side of the Jordan River. And Moses is about to die, and he's going to give his final exhortation to these people that he's led for 40, almost 41 years. And uh, before he begins, he gives what I consider to be a very interesting commentary, because it's kind of contrary to the whole book, which is Moses just exhorting and teaching and building up and, and, and uh, showing Israel and reminding them what they need to do. But in, in chapter 1, verse 2, he kind of adds in this, this pre-commentary. It says, Normally it takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, going by way of Mount Seir. But 40 years after the Israelites left Mount Sinai on a day in midwinter, Moses gave these speeches to the Israelites, telling them everything the Lord had commanded him to say. Now, that's interesting to me. Uh, nobody knows exactly where Mount Sinai is. There's several mountains in the area that people think is Mount Sinai. Uh, but it's estimated that Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea was about 126 miles. And the way that they traveled in large numbers, and according to Moses here, that was only an 11-day journey from the mountain to the promised land. Uh, however, Israel was in the wilderness, like we talked about, for 40 years after receiving the law at Mount Sinai. Now, the time spent traveling from Egypt to the mountain, and the approximately a year that they were at the mountain receiving the law, receiving God's instruction uh, for, for the tabernacle and how to approach Him and how to worship Him, and that uh, 11-day journey were legitimate means to get from Egypt to the promised land. They were necessary. They were God-inspired. So that part of the wilderness journey was legitimate, yet most of the experience in the wilderness, that additional 40 years that resulted from their rebellion against God, was illegitimate. It was an illegitimate experience, and it was uh, unnecessary to get where God wanted them to be. So how does that apply to us today is the question. And I want to show you something really cool. If you've never seen this before, uh, I call this one of the keys to the Old Testament. Because how many of you know that there's a lot of really good commentaries on the Bible, but the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. You know, and any time that the New Testament comments on the Old Testament, it really shines a lot of light on... Uh, on what God was trying to say and how it might apply to us today. And so, if we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul actually talks about uh, this period in Israel's history and gives some, some really good insight that will kind of open your eyes to the Old Testament, maybe in a way that you've never seen before. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Get some water while we turn. Uh, 
He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, what happened to our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. God guided all of them by sending a cloud that moved along ahead of them, and he brought them all safely through the waters of the sea on, on dry ground. As followers of Moses, they were all baptized in the cloud and the sea, and all of them ate the same miraculous food, and all of them drank the same miraculous water, for they all drank from the miraculous rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet after all this, God was not pleased with most of them, and he destroyed them in the wilderness. These events happened as a warning to us that we would not crave evil things as they did, or worship idols as some of them did. For the scriptures say the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged themselves in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble as some of them did, for that is why God sent his angel of death to destroy them. And here's the key. Verse 11, all these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the time when this age is drawing to a close. Now, like I said, this passage to me is, is a key to the book of Exodus through the book of Joshua. And it really applies to the whole New Testament, but specifically he's, he's pointing out this Old Testament truth about this period of Israel's history from the Exodus to uh, the conquering of the Promised Land. And what he's really saying here is, is that the history of Israel is symbolic, or uh, you may have heard the word before, typical of the journey of the New Testament believer. There's, there's types in everything that happened to Israel, and Israel is a type of the born-again believer. The nation of Israel as a whole is a type of, of, of a single uh, born-again New Testament believer, and the events in their history mark, uh, I guess you would call them key milestones that every believer has to go through, but we also see some of the things that they fall into as some of the key stumbling blocks that we have to deal with as well. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about. I'll just give you a high level of what I'm talking about. Uh, the Egyptian slavery is typical of the bondage that we have to sin apart from Jesus Christ. Before we're born again, we are in bondage to sin. Uh, the Passover experience in Egypt, which was the last plague before they came out, was uh, the, the whole essence of it was is that the angel of death was coming to kill the firstborn of every single house in Israel, and you were only uh, delivered from the judgment by applying the blood of the lamb to your house. And it was by the application of the blood of the lamb that the judgment passed over their house and then they were brought out of their Egyptian bondage because of that. And you can see the, the, the ties there to the, to the born-again salvation experience there. And so that's, that's, that's the, the key there. The deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea is typical of the separation of our, us from our old life and from the old sins of our life in water baptism. You know, Paul said in this, in this passage here, 
In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, he said they were all baptized in the same sea. And so that's, that's typical of the, of the water baptism experience. Uh, the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai and that necessary 11-day journey from Mount Sinai to the promised land is typical of, of how every new believer has to become grounded in the Word and in prayer and in the doctrines of the church. And there is a legitimate time of learning you know, the Apostle Paul, as awesome as he is, and, you know, he saw the light, you know, he saw Jesus, and, and, and he had an encounter with the Savior. But what a lot of people don't realize is, and I don't remember uh, which one of his letters he talks about it, but he actually spent three years in the Arabian desert <laughs> studying and learning and talking to the Lord and, and, and receiving that revelation and so there is a necessary time of growth for every believer where we need to become grounded in the Word. And, and you know, the, the, the Bible says that we should crave the pure milk, but it also exhorts us to grow up. You know, Paul rebuked the Hebrews because he said, you should be teachers by now, but you're like babies still craving uh, the milk of the Word. And so, but the, there is that legitimate time of growth. And the crossing of the Jordan River, when they finally did cross... That's typical of, of when, we, when we crucify our flesh, when we finally come to that point where, where we're not just baby Christians about me, 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 but we begin to, to deny ourselves to take up the cross and follow after Him. And then the promised land is typical of that full, rich life of walking in the Spirit. It's, the, it's, that, it's those times whenever, whenever we have whenever we have denied ourselves and whenever God elevates us into the Spirit and we're led and empowered by the Spirit. And so that's the, that's the, the high-arcing topology of the history of Israel and how it applies to us today. And if you read, if you read Exodus through Deuteronomy, I mean, I'm sorry, through Joshua, with, with that in mind, it, it kind of some neat things kind of come out at you. It's pretty cool. So there is, uh, like I said, there is a time for growth and development in every born-again believer as we journey from the born-again experience to walking in the Spirit. But something very important that we need to understand is, is that God does not want us to dwell in the wilderness. God doesn't want us to go from the legitimate wilderness experience into an illegitimate wilderness experience. And... Um, the walk in the Spirit begins when we crucify the flesh or the sin nature within us. You know, I was reading an article today. Sometimes that word flesh is kind of weird, but all that the flesh means is it's man apart from God. That's the flesh. We are flesh. You know, the Bible says that, that when sin entered the world, the Spirit died, and there was an inversion where man was no longer ruled and governed by his Spirit but man was ruled and governed by the uh, initiatives of his body, his flesh. And, and, you know, the Bible talks about how our flesh is, is, is in total depravity. We have no hope in the flesh. We're in complete rebellion against God in the flesh. Without God, uh, there, there is no hope for man. And that's the flesh, man without God. Uh, and we're in the flesh whenever we resort back to allowing those drives of the body, those natural sin tendencies to drive us rather than our spirit. So, 
the walk in the Spirit starts when we crucify our flesh. And, uh, you know, Paul talks about this a lot throughout the New Testament. He talks about it over and over and over and over again. And one of the things, one of the key things that he focuses on and that I want to focus on tonight is that there is in every single believer a conflict between the Spirit and the flesh. There's an ongoing conflict. So let's flip over to Galatians chapter 5, an excellent chapter in the Bible that talks about all of these things. And uh, we'll just read parts of it. If you look at Galatians 5.16, he says, So I advise you to live according to your new life in the Holy Spirit. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The old sinful nature, which is the flesh, loves to do evil, which is just opposite from what the Holy Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature desires. Now here's, here's something very important. I got this underlined. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, and your choices are never free from this conflict. But when you are directed by the Holy Spirit, you are no longer subject to the law. And what he's saying there is, is that the renewed spirit inside of every believer is continually in conflict with these flesh drives that still remain inside of us because even though even though we are born again, even though we're renewed on the inside, we still live in a body. We still live in a body that has needs, and this body is desperately fighting to remain in control uh, when, when, when God wants us to have that inversion and submit to Him in the Spirit. So when we entertain the flesh, we are governed by the things of the flesh, and they kind of consume our mind. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Uh, how am I going to buy this? Uh, I need more. I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy with my circumstance. Oh, God, how can you do this to me? Blah, blah, blah. You know? And these things drive us and they consume us. The Bible says they consume our mind when we're in the flesh, the things of the flesh. You were told to walk in the Spirit. And we must realize that the flesh nature has been crucified and does not rule over us anymore. You know, the Bible talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. You know, you've heard, you've heard the liberty that we have in Christ. And a lot of people misinterpret that and they become very liberal with their salvation. And they become very liberal with their uh, Christian walk and what they allow in their lives. But that liberty that we have in Christ is not a liberty to test God. You know, Paul said in that passage in Corinthians, don't test God like they did because it leads to death in your life. You know, so that liberty isn't to test God and see how far we can push the boundaries. That liberty means that we don't have to sin anymore. You know, we don't have to be governed and ruled by that sin nature anymore. We can be elevated above that in the spirit. Now, do I believe that it's possible not to sin at all? No, I do not believe that. But I believe that God calls us to a higher life where we walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And um, that flesh nature, that ability to crucify the flesh or that willingness to crucify, crucify the flesh is what defines 
our wilderness experience. Because the the length of our wilderness experience and whether we revert back to the wilderness experience is directly proportional and linked to uh, when we get to that point of submission to God where the, where the flesh is crucified. That, and, it, and it's summed up, you know, and I've said it already tonight, but it's summed up in that scripture. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow after me. It's self-denial. And, and that's where we find the crucifixion of the flesh. Uh, though we're born again and saved from our sins by simple faith in Jesus Christ, we can never enter in to the glorious promises of God when we're walking in the flesh. It's not possible. They're contrary to one another. Israel could not be in the promised land and in the wilderness at the same time. They're two different places. They are mutually exclusive from one another. And it's the same with us. We can't walk in the promises of God. We can be born again and walk in the flesh but we can't walk in those, in those full, rich, and awesome promises of God if we're in the wilderness, if we're walking in the flesh. And, you know, Paul gave an example of his wilderness walk. Turn to Romans chapter 7. You're probably familiar with this passage. He talks about how he dealt with the flesh and, and, and how it was contrary to his spirit. Starting in uh, 7.14, he says, The law is good then. The trouble is not with the law, but with me. Because I am sold into slavery, with sin as my master. I don't understand myself at all, for I really want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do the very thing I hate. Excuse me. I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong, and my bad conscience shows that I agree that the law is good, but I can't help myself because it is sin inside me that makes me do these evil things. I know I'm rotten through and through so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to do, I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. But if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. The sin within me is doing it. It seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another law at work within me that is at war with my mind. This law wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? Don't raise your hand, but have you ever felt that way? I know what I need to do, but I just can't do it. I can't make myself do it. I know what I don't want to do, but I find myself... Right in the middle of it. So frustrating. You know, in this passage, Paul described the problem that every believer faces at some point in our life. You know, uh, and it's not, it's not one of those things that we face it one time and we conquer it. And then once we conquered it, it's dead. 
You know, it's a daily struggle. I know that I can be way up in the spirit and come way down in the flesh very fast. And so it's a daily struggle that we deal with. And his problem that he saw, what I, what I take from this passage, is that he could not execute the divine ideal that he saw in Christ because he was being brought down by that flesh nature. He called himself a wretched man. Yet moving forward, he begins to explain the answer to that very important question that we should all ask ourselves whenever we find ourselves in this position. Who can deliver me from this condition of sin? What can deliver me from this flesh? So I'm just going to continue on here. It says, Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. And then he transitions. Remember, there's no chapter breaks in the letter. The chapters were added later. So this is just a straight continuation. He says, so now there is, n- there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses could not save us because of our sinful nature, but God put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent His own Son in a human body like ours, except that ours are sinful. God destroyed sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the requirement of the law would be fully accomplished for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. If your sinful nature controls your mind, there is death. But if the Holy Spirit controls your mind, there is life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them are not Christians at all. Since Christ lives within you, even though your body will die because of sin, your spirit is alive because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as He raised Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal body by this same Spirit living within you. So, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation whatsoever to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. There's the liberty. For if you keep on following it, you will perish. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit... You turn from it and its evil deeds, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That's the answer. Paul found the answer to who will deliver me from this flesh when he began to look outside of his own ability, outside of himself, to the power of of God through salvation in Jesus Christ and the impartation and the filling and the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
Because how many of y'all know that when we're, when we're born again, we receive the Spirit? That's what he was talking about. You know, those who don't have the Spirit uh, aren't Christians at all. But we can have the Holy Spirit in us and be born again and be solidly walking in the flesh. You know, and, 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 but this is the key. We can't rely on our own power. We've got to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know how many times he said Holy Spirit in that passage, but it was several times, you know. And the focus there is, is that it's not within me. It's within him. It's his power. Uh, the wilderness experience is defined when we are trying to bring our flesh into conformity to God and His will. It's when we have that mentality, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to, in my own power, wake up and, 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 and do the things that God wants me to do. But that's not the way... That, that, that'll keep us in the wilderness because we'll be a Romans 7 Christian every time we try to bring the flesh into conformity to God's will. We only, uh, we only become a Romans 8 Christian when we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Because that, that law, that law of the flesh that Paul talks about will always bring us down when we're walking in our own power. And you see, the other, the other problem that the wilderness believer has is that they're trying to bring the flesh into conformity to God's will, when in fact, God's only solution for the flesh is not to bring it into conformity, but to crucify it. He says, crucify the flesh, mortify, kill, put the old man to death. There's no place in our lives for the flesh, and that's God's only solution is to crucify it. The cry must come, who will deliver me? We must despair of trying to free ourselves from our flesh nature and yield to the Spirit, for it is in realizing that we cannot deliver ourselves that the Spirit has strength in us. You know, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12.10, when we are weak, then we're strong. It's when we realize that we are absolutely incapable of standing on our own that we become strong because we begin to rely on him god promises that we will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon us acts 1 8 and it is from that power not from our own power but from that power that we walk in those full and rich and awesome life that is typified by the by the promised land and that god wants us to walk in god wants us to walk as close to the glory of His kingdom in this life as is humanly possible. And the only limitation is us. We're the ones that keep ourselves in the wilderness. He's calling us to the promised land. In closing, well, hold on, I think I got ahead of myself. I skipped a paragraph. Uh, now, it's not God's desire for the whole nation of Israel to perish in the wilderness. That wasn't God's will. That wasn't God's perfect will. It was a tragic failure of their faith overtaken by fear. And how many of you know oftentimes it's fear that keeps us from moving in faith? Fear of what people are going to think about us. Fear of how uh, our spouse is going to react to us. 
You know, the devil speaks this lie into my life all the time. You know, I, I know, I know that, that I need to pray for my son because he's sick. Or I know that I need to, to speak the word into Laura's life because, because she's going through a difficult time. And there's a lie that comes up inside of me that says, that says, well, she's going to think that's stupid. You know, they're going to think that's stupid. Why? Don't do that. And it suppresses my faith. It's, it's fear on the inside of me. You know, fear is what keeps us from witnessing to our coworkers and friends and family. It's fear that overcomes faith. And it's, it's, it's shown in this story and it, it, and it's, escapes across every aspect of life faith so we got to overcome that fear they looked at the obstacles before them rather than the power of God to deliver them from those obstacles and that's the same problem that we have we focus on the problems of our life and we focus on the difficulties of the life we focus on the things we don't have we focus on 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 uh, the the uh, that, that conflict in the flesh and the struggle with it and the, and the giants in our life that we face instead of focusing on the power and the ability of God to deliver us from them all. You know? And it keeps us in the wilderness. It's only by that power, that power of God to deliver us, that we can come into the promised land. You know? And, and so... Just in closing here now, <laughs> uh, I want to read you a little bit more in Romans 8 because he goes on to talk about those promises, those promises that God has in walking in the Spirit. And uh, you might read verse 18 through, uh, through 25. It talks about uh, more uh, afterlife things, heaven things. But I want to start in, in verse 26 just to kind of look at some of the things that God promises us in this life. So, uh, Romans eight twenty six, he says, And the Holy Spirit helps us in our distress, for we don't even know what we should pray for, nor how we should pray. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And this next scripture, we all know it, but the context of this scripture is to those who are walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. And so read this very familiar scripture with that context. He says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn with many brothers and sisters, and having chosen them, he called them to come to him, and he gave them right standing with himself, and he promised them his glory. So what can we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't God, who gave us Christ, also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Well, God, no. He is the one who has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? Well, Christ Jesus, no. For he is the one who died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor 
next to God pleading for us. Then Paul kind of begins to address those who might think, well, then my life should be easy, right? Everything should go my way. But he says in verse 35, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or cold or in danger or threatened with death? Even the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from his love. Death can't and life can't. The angels can't and the demons can't. Our fears for today, our worries about tomorrow, and even the powers of hell can't keep God's love away. Whether we are high above the sky or in the deepest ocean, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so these are the promises. These are the awesome promises that that God offers to us. And, you know, I just want to share one more bit of Old Testament symbolism that's an awesome picture uh, of what God has in store for us. You know, there's a story in Genesis that you probably know. Uh, In Genesis, uh, Abraham had the son of promise, Isaac. And when Isaac got older... Uh, Abraham took his servant and he, he made his servant promise that he would go to the foreign land where he was from and, and get a wife for his son Isaac. And so Isaac, uh, you know, he said, well, what if she doesn't want to come with me? This is kind of weird, you know, she's not. And he, he said, look, take these gifts. God's going to lead you to the woman for Isaac. You take these gifts Whenever you know who it is, you, you, you give her the gifts and you offer her to, become, to come and become a part of the inheritance that, that we have in, in God, to come be a part of this covenant promise that we have. So uh, he went, and uh, God, God led him to Rebekah through camels and water bowls, and you can read about it in Genesis. Uh, you know, it, it, it was very specific who, who the servant was to choose. And the servant invited Rebekah to come and marry Isaac on a leap of faith. She never met him. She didn't know him. But he told her about the inheritance that she would receive if she came and married the son of promise. And she, he, 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 he began to, to show her the gifts of gold that he had with him. And then he began to speak of the, of the, of the, of the wealth and the the, uh, the 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 innumerable gifts that she would come into and inherit if she would take this leap of faith. And upon acceptance of the proposal, you know, he he immediately about I think he put a ring on her finger, and uh, I think it says he put a ring in her nose. And uh, I've got some yeses. So, and uh, and he he began to give her gifts immediately upon the acceptance of the proposal. And then, of course, she came back and married Isaac and came into the lineage of Jesus Christ. And, uh, but a lot of Bible scholars believe that there's some very 
interesting New Testament topology in this story. Uh, Abraham is said to be a type of God. Isaac of Jesus Christ, the servant of the Holy Spirit, and Rebecca of the church, the bride of Christ. Uh, and you see, God has sent his spirit into a distant land, and he's calling people. He's looking for a bride. He's looking for a bride to come and marry his son, and he offers rich, innumerable gifts. And when we, when we accept that proposal, we immediately receive the gifts of salvation, of the Spirit, of the filling of the Holy Spirit, of the peace. We immediately receive that, get those gifts. But God has innumerable, invaluable, irreplaceable gifts that He offers to us. He offers us to come and step in and be a part of His kingdom plan and to walk in a life that we can never earn on a job, to walk in a life that we could never earn by our own merit, our own hard work, but it's only by submission and faith, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we can step in and be a part of those, those kingdom promises that God wants for us. You know, uh, and I just want to reiterate again, you know, the crucifying of the flesh is not a one-time event, but a continual process as long as we live in these bodies. You know, it's a continual process. Paul said that he died daily. Every day he had to bring his flesh into the crucified state and submit himself to the Spirit. And, and I would even take that for, farther to say that is something that we really have to do multiple times a day. You know, uh, he warned that we should be careful. You know, I don't know the chapter and verse, but he said, if you're standing strong, be careful unless you fall. Because it's so easy to fall from that spirit to the flesh. But one day, the battle will be over. You know, the Bible says that you know, we're all, God's coming for all of us. You know, uh, I don't know for sure if, you know, the rapture of the church is going to be before the tribulation or after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation. I don't know if it's going to be in our lifetime that God returns and raptures the church. But I do know that God's coming for all of us. Because to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And the Bible says that whenever we see Him, that we'll be like Him. Amen? And so we look forward to that, and we struggle. <laughs> we struggle until then. Amen? All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit in our lives, God. God, I believe that it is a tactic of the enemy, Lord, to have the church forget about the necessity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God. And I just pray that you would help us to be more aware of your Spirit, God. Lord, that, that God, in moments of weakness, that we would be more inclined to call upon your Spirit to empower us, God. To, to, to empower us, Lord, to crucify the flesh, to deny ourselves, 
and follow after you, O Lord. And so, God, I just, I just thank you, Lord, today that you're just raising our awareness, God, that you're bringing us into a greater dependency upon you, Lord. And God, I, I thank you, Father, that, that our church, Lord, that our congregation, that the people in this room, Lord God, walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh, Lord. God, help us and lead us, Lord. Help us to, to forsake our own methods and strengths, Lord God, and trust completely in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.